This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is on the ground dot org. Thank you. From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Unlike in the U.S., Canadians are confronting the fact that their government is supporting Nazis in the war in Ukraine supporting far-right Ukrainian nationalists with the same ideology that Canadians fought against in World War II. What was an enemy in World War II, which our troops died saving us from, are an ally today, influencing policies. Statues have been erected in their honor, such as the one in Edmonton of Roman Shukovich, a military commander on the Nazi side responsible for the death of some 100,000 Poles. And dozens of organizations and people all over Canada have also signed onto a petition demanding that the Canadian government stop funding Ukrainian groups and monuments that promote Nazi ideology at home. Let's stop funding the Nazis here in Canada and let's say that the Second World War was fought to stop the Nazis, stop fascism. All that and much more on today's show. Welcome to On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital for November 18th, 2022. I'm Esther Averam. Well, leading up to this final day of the UN Climate Summit or COP27 in Egypt, activists are expressing alarm that like the agreement coming from last year's summit, this year's draft agreement is only mentioning a phase out of coal and omitting a recommendation to also phase out oil and gas, which are major fossil fuels heating up the planet. The head of the COP27 delegation for Greenpeace, Yeb Sanyo, said the draft, quote, pushes the pedal to the metal on the highway to climate hell. Sanyo adds, quote, After initially failing to even mention fossil fuels, the draft text is an abdication of responsibility to capture the urgency expressed by many countries to see all oil and gas added to coal for at least a phase down. It is time to end the denial the fossil fuel age must be brought to a rapid end, end quote, Sanyo said. Activists are also pushing for implementation of promised loss and damage payments to vulnerable countries from richer countries responsible for emitting the bulk of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. The fact that the draft of the summit report does not include loss and damage is reprehensible, said Daniel Willis, climate policy lead at the organization Global Justice Now. Willis said that countries most impacted by climate chaos are calling for a new UN fund to provide compensation for loss and damage and that the fund could be created with increased taxes on fossil fuel corporations. Since the five biggest companies reported $170 billion in profits during the past 12 months. 
Eddie Perez, an organizer with Climate Action Network Canada, described in a statement from the summit how meaningful progress on loss and damage is being blocked. We're currently discussing the adoption and the creation, the historic opportunity to deliver for the most vulnerable around the world the creation of a loss and damage fund at this COP27. Again, the least developed countries and the island states are clear. They can't leave this place and come back to their homes, to their communities, and come back with nothing. At the same time, on the other side, we have countries that keep opposing these calls from becoming concrete. Sweden, for example, is blocking at this moment within the European Union any kind of progress to have a very robust discussion on the support that the European Union needs to provide to those least developed countries, those island states, those communities in Pakistan facing climate devastation and trying to recover. But Sweden, they just want to delay. They are blocking any kind of progress in this space, and they are actually contributing to making this debate an irrelevant one. They're disconnected at this moment from the reality, and that is not what people came to do here. We came to deliver climate action, climate justice for people uh, that are suffering climate devastation. Willis of Global Justice now referred to the fact that some of the 600 fossil fuel lobbyists attending the climate summit are actually members of negotiating delegations from countries, adding, quote, so it's not hard to imagine where the holdup on loss and damage payments might be coming from, end quote. The annual meeting of the Group of 20 Largest Economies, or G20, ended Wednesday in Bali. And here to give us the highlights is on-the-grounds geopolitical analyst Gerald Horn, the prolific author and professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. Thank you, Gerald, for joining me. And it seems like all the economic and policy news this week came from outside of the G20 or on the sidelines of it, like uh, President Xi of China planning to travel to Saudi Arabia for a meeting or Saudi Arabia planning to join BRICS and no substantial policies related to the climate crisis while the UN climate conference is also winding up. But what was your biggest takeaway? Well, obviously, the planned meeting of President Xi to Saudi Arabia is highly significant. It could lead to the demise of the so-called petrodollar, that is to say, the lifeblood of economies, speaking of petroleum, being purchased in U.S. dollars, quite an advantage for Washington and Wall Street, and the advent of a new era, the petrol yuan, that is to say, based on the Chinese currency. So keep an eye peeled for that. And in any case, uh, taking place simultaneous with the G20 meeting, the group of 20 countries in Bali, Indonesia, just a day or two ago, was this remarkable occurrence on the Ukraine-Poland border where a missile hit Polish nationals. And Associated Press, this raises a question of journalistic ethics, they cited an unnamed U.S. official who suggested that it was a Russian missile that led to these Polish deaths. 
immediately you saw the British press pick up on this, began beating the drums, in a sense calling for World War III. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed. And I think one of the reasons was that this was taking place with the Group of 20 meeting in Bali, Indonesia, and Mr. Biden could receive counsel from the Germans, who obviously are not necessarily on board with regard to every conflict that Washington wants to get embroiled in. I'm speaking, obviously, of Chancellor Schultz's path-breaking summit with President Xi in China just a few days ago. And other North Atlantic leaders were there to huddle with President Biden. And quickly, the story emerged that it was not a Russian missile. But what this should remind us, obviously, is of the very potentially cataclysmic effects of this U.S. proxy war in Ukraine, not to mention its complement, which is how the Poles and the Baltics and the Ukrainians want to drag the United States in deeper than it already is, up to and including perhaps tipping the planet into World War III. So also related to that, that missile strike, President Volodymyr Zelensky immediately made a statement blaming Russia. And he was a part of this little clique or chorus uh, wanting Article 5 to be uh, put into effect, you know, which would bring NATO into a war in defense of Poland, a NATO member. So it seems to me that one aftermath is that people are looking more askance at Zelensky and seeing really what a dangerous figure he is. I mean, and then here in the United States, you know, with you know, the Democrats being the war party at this time, you have someone like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, this very far right Republican being the one of the few voices speaking out saying this, that, you know, we should not be giving money to anyone heading a country who is so quickly and so foolishly and dangerously trying to, as you said, you know, kind of initiate World War III, you know, with our tax dollars. Well, usually it's the United States, and actually it's the case in Ukraine. They want to fight the Russian to the last Ukrainian. But Ukraine obviously wants to fight the Russians to the last U.S. national and up to and including the last U.S. tax dollar. So this is a very perilous moment that we face. And as you suggested, perhaps even more dangerous is the fact that the right-wing Republicans are somehow able to drape themselves in the cloak of peace, which is obviously the height of demagogy. Right. Yeah. So it's really they want to fight China instead. Uh, but yeah. So one last thing is the obvious omission of anything meaningful dealing with the climate crisis as the COP27 or UN climate summit is also winding up in Egypt. I mean, for those of us who are following, you know, what needs to be done, you know, there's this horrible marriage between this proxy war against Russia, which has ratcheted up the use of fossil fuels or delayed the development of alternative energy plans just as the world, you know, so desperately needs it? Well, I hope 
that a result of the meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, of the leaders conferring on the environment, will be momentum towards a kind of reparations from the global north to the global south to compensate the latter for the damage that the global north has done to the climate and the environment over the decades. Obviously, if that gains momentum, it will form a kind of precedent for another kind of reparations, that is to say, reparations to the descendants of the enslaved, not least in North America. So we can only push towards that dual goal. Well, I'll have to hope right along with you. But when I look at the tens of billions uh, put into the war in Ukraine, while the initial 100 billion promised back in Paris at that climate summit hasn't, you know, materialized, I, I don't know. I'll just hope. <laughs> I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me, Gerald. Thank you. Back in the U.S. and politics, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced Thursday that she will not seek another term as House leader. Her announcement fulfills a 2018 pledge to limit herself to four more years as the Democratic Party leader. In Los Angeles, Karen Bass, six-term Democratic congresswoman with roots in left organizing, was elected mayor, beating billionaire developer Rick Caruso, a former Republican who outspent Bass 11 to 1 with $100 million of his own money. And the same week that former President Trump announced his bid for re-election in 2024, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol announced the creation of a subcommittee to deal with, quote, outstanding issues, end quote, including potential criminal referrals. Thousands of unionized Starbucks workers at 100 coffee shops across the country walked off the job Thursday, protesting the company's failure to engage in good faith negotiations. Workers at more than 260 Starbucks across the U.S. have voted to unionize since late last year, but the company has yet to agree to a contract with any of the stores. Employees have accused the corporation of engaging in egregious stalling tactics. The National Labor Relations Board on Tuesday asked a federal court in Michigan for a nationwide cease and desist order prohibiting Starbucks from firing workers for union organizing. Federal prosecutors also asked the court to reinstate and reimburse a Starbucks worker who was fired from a Michigan store and require Starbucks to publicly inform the store's employees of their rights under the National Labor Relations Act. In Black Lives Matter news, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation announced Wednesday that it would begin an independent investigation after a video went viral of a gang of police officers in Georgia beating a 41-year-old black man, Jared Hobbs, last September while in custody at the Camden County Detention Center. The footage from the sheriff's office was released by the attorney for Hobbs, Harry Daniels. The video shows Hobbs standing in a holding cell when one officer enters and appears to grab Hobbs by the neck. Then four more jailers come in 
to the cell and attack Hobbs, seemingly focused on holding him up to beat him in his head and neck. Camden County Sheriff Jim Proctor has ordered an internal investigation more than two months after the incident occurred, according to a statement from the sheriff's office on Monday. At a press conference on Thursday, Daniels and Hobbs' family called for the jailers to be arrested. I said over and over again, it doesn't matter you wear a badge, shield, or star. Nobody's above the law. And these officers need to be held accountable. And not only these officers need to be held accountable, this jail administration need to be held accountable. There's no way in hell that anybody should be beaten the way this man was beaten. I don't care what he did. I don't care if he knocked the damn door down. You don't beat a person like that. In an extended portion of the video, not included in the viral version, you can hear screaming come from Hobbs' cell during the attack. Hobbs was reportedly on suicide watch at the jail and did not receive medical attention and was put in solitary confinement for two weeks after the beating. He was released on bond from Camden County custody on September 30th. And finally, in culture and media, Black Panther Wakanda Forever has passed $400 million globally. The sequel launched to $181 million in North America last weekend, a November record. It was also the second biggest box office debut of 2022 so far. All-star basketball guard Kyrie Irving may rejoin the Brooklyn Nets as soon as Sunday, November 20th in a game against the Memphis Grizzlies following a suspension after he posted a link to a film many in the Jewish community found offensive, and he did not immediately apologize for it. National Basketball Players Association Executive Director Tamika Tremaglio told ESPN on Wednesday night, quote, Kyrie rejects anti-Semitism in any form, and he's dedicated to bettering himself and increasing his level of understanding. He plans to continue this journey well into the future to ensure that his words and actions align with his pursuit of truth and knowledge, end quote. We'll have more on Kyrie Irving and what activist Sean King called the over-policing of Black voices on a future show with our media critic, John Jeter. And finally, finally, there's an important program on Saturday, November 19th, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. in New York City. It's at the People's Forum, 1320 West 37th Street. But in-person attendance is probably sold out. But this uh, program is called The Real Path to Peace in Ukraine. And it's advocating for peace rather than the escalation of war. Speakers include Jeremy Corbyn, Dr. Jill Stein, Brian Becker, Eugene Perrier, Medea Benjamin, and many, many more. You can see the program online on the YouTube channel for the People's Forum. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. We refuse to be 
you wanted us to be. We are what we are. That's the way it's going to be. If you don't know, you can't educate us or no equal opportunity. Talking about my freedom, people freedom and liberty. Yeah, we've been shouting on the wine place much too long. Rebel, rebel. Yes, we've been shouting on the wine place much too long. Rebel. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, through all the many hollow tributes just given to members of the Military for Veterans Day, I say hollow because so many U.S. veterans are homeless, addicted to drugs, not receiving health and mental health care, and are committing suicide. And through all of that, I still thought of my dad, who served in World War II as a teenager. I thought of how he and his peers were proud to have fought in what is called the good war against the German Nazis and how he would feel if he was still with me to know that this country, the United States, the country he fought for is now sending tens of billions of dollars to fighting forces that include Nazis in Ukraine, the Azov Battalion and other far right groups who consider actual Nazi collaborator Stepan Bandera to be a hero. But those hideous truths about history or about today are banned from any commentary in the United States about Veterans Day or about this current U.S. proxy war against Russia, which as a part of the former Soviet Union and a U.S. ally lost 27 million people in World War II as their Red Army defeated Germany's Hitler. The death toll in the U.S. was 407,000. So with the telling of such facts, basically verboten in the U.S., except for independent media, I was struck to hear a podcast from Canada, a recent episode of the Global Research News Hour, where the true history and the true facts of today are mentioned. The title of the show is Canadian Support for Nazi Collaborators After World War II, Lest We Forget. So following are people featured on that show explaining their decision to sign a petition calling for the defunding of their tax dollars from organizations and monuments in Canada that promote Nazi ideology. This is the first part of this month's episode on the F word on fascism. And after you hear these voices, I'll have part two with the host and producer of the show. Richard Sanders and the coalition opposed to the arms trade set up a petition Stop Canadian government funding of groups that glorify Nazi collaborators. It reads as follows. We call on the Canadian government to stop giving financial support to Eastern European ethno-nationalist associations that whitewash their forebears' complicity in the Holocaust and other crimes against humanity. 
As taxpayers, we oppose our government's continued funding to monuments, publications, events, and meeting centers that are used by these Canadian groups to glorify the memory of their Nazi collaborating founders, leaders, activists, and war heroes. Forty-six separate organizations have endorsed this petition. They include the Canadian Palestine Association, the Canadian Coalition Against Racism, Independent Jewish Voices Canada, the Canada Files, Ontario Committee for Human Rights in the Philippines, Esprit de Corps magazine, and peace groups all across the country. We will hear testimonies from some of the signatories indicating why they signed the petition. My name is Robin Philpot. I am publisher of Baraka Books, uh, based in Montreal, uh, Quebec, for the last 40 so 40 plus years. I'm originally from uh, Northern Ontario, and I'm uh, I've written several books in French and some in English, and I've been publishing Baraka Books since 2009. That was when we founded it. Basically, Canada, through the British, agreed to receive thousands former Ukrainian members of the Waffen-SS Galizian Regiment. And these were people who had been under the leadership of Stepan Bandera. It was called the UPA, which was the military wing of the Ukrainian nationalist movement. And this movement, they were the ones who hailed the arrival of the Nazis in the Ukraine when they invaded the Soviet Union in 1941 and participated in pogroms against Jews, Poles, and others. And they, throughout the war, from 41 to 45, they were active members. They were not in the Waffen-SS to start with, but then they were. And then as the war was about to end, they changed their name again. But the German command continued considering the the Waffen-SS Galizian. Now, so after the war, they build themselves, and the British and the Canadians accepted it, that they were good, hardworking people, and especially they were anti-communist and anti-Soviet, and they would help Canada. And so they arrived in the late 40s and early 50s, and included in these groups were was Christia Freeland's grandfather, Michael Chomiak. And... So their goal was to go back and continue the work that they had been doing with the Nazis. And people, there have been all kinds of efforts to clean up their history and try and pretend that it was a national struggle and they were against the Germans and the Soviet Union, which is uh, clearly a lot of hogwash. In fact, it's it's a I think it's an uncle, a Ukrainian Canadian academic, John Paul Hlinka, who pointed out that they were Nazi collaborators right through. And there's no way you can um, change the history of that group and those people. And the man who who's, has a monument to him in Edmonton, or to the organization who has a monument to him in Oakville, Ontario where there's glory to the UPA, which was the Waffen-SS, Galician branch of the Waffen-SS. So these people came here. They had buildings, the organization of the uh, Ukrainian Congress uh, of Canada, I can't remember what that's the exact name, managed to get funding from the federal government under multiculturalism in the early 70s, built a building 
And the building where the monument is to Chukovich, uh, who was a leader of the Waffen-SS, was built with multicultural funds from the federal government. And then the other monument was says, Glory to the UPA, which is glory, and it's in Oakville, Ontario. Now, for somebody, for anybody who uh, fought against the Nazis, who was opposed to Nazi politics, or whose family fought against the Nazis, uh, and in my case, it was my father fought uh, in the war in uh, Italy and in Holland against the Nazis. He came back, many didn't. It is a, a total insult, and Canada should remove these monuments that glorify the Nazis. I would say that the reason that, that this is happening is that, and there's a man in the United States called Lasha, Yasha Levine, who, uh, a Russian-American, who talks about weaponizing immigrants or weaponizing immigration. I think that's what the British in Canada wanted to do, because in their desire to put an end to the Soviet Union, they thought that these people would be helpful. The war that was the most destructive in history was the Second World War. And the Soviet Union lost more than 20 million people. There were 6 million people killed in the Holocaust, 6 million Jews, a lot of whom came from the area in Eastern Europe, very lot in Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania. And they were just eliminated by the same people, by the same ideology that these people celebrate. Now, they will pretend that they are just opposed to the Soviet Union, but that's not what they were doing. And the worst pogrom, the worst massacres of Jews in Eastern Europe occurred in the Ukraine. And the UPA, which is celebrated, participated in in those massacres. The Canadian Jewish Congress has opposed the fact that Canada received these people at the behest of the British. This was late 40s. But Canada overlooked what the Canadian Jewish Congress was saying about that. Now, so the 11th of November is a day when we remember the people who fought for freedom against Nazism. There are people who want to make it into a war kind of thing where you're going to be uh, trying to change it into something that it's not. But that is why people would go out and remember on the 11th is the fight for freedom, and particularly the fight for freedom against Nazism. So today, the day that uh, of the 11th of November 2022, Canadians and uh, should be saying, let's make it clear we're opposed to Nazism. And the way to do so is to remove these monuments. If we do not recognize that period and the Ukrainian collaboration of some Ukrainians that will not help us to understand what's going on now and the presence of neo-Nazis that Canada has participated in training in the Ukraine and in the war right now being conducted in the Ukraine. Russia has talked about neo-Nazis. People try and say, oh, it's not true. It's not true. It is very true. And the tradition goes back to the period we're talking about and the monuments here that celebrate. And the monuments to the same people have been erected across Ukraine. And so it is extremely important for Canadians to understand this history that underlies the current crisis.
that's going on in Ukraine and that Canada is participating in actively through NATO and on its own. And that is something we should be aware of on this day, the 11th of November, 2022. Bruce Gagnon, I'm the coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. I live in Maine. I grew up in a military family. We moved all over the United States and the world uh, growing up, an Air Force family. I was a young Republican for Nixon in 68, so I was indoctrinated uh, by the military schools that I attended growing up, and uh, I was a conservative as a young young guy. And uh, But then in 71, 1971, I joined the Air Force during the Vietnam War. I wanted to be like my dad. And I was sent to a base in California that was an airlift base for the war in Vietnam. And as it turned out, my first roommate was one of the organizers in the GI resistance movement. So there would be meetings in my room at night. And that was where I became a peace activist. And I've been one ever since. I see Canada, along with the U.S. and other NATO countries, but Canada being one of the foremost, providing massive support for the essentially Nazi-led war going on in Ukraine against Russia. I believe that the United States and NATO are using Ukraine as a hammer to attack Russia and their desire to force regime change there. Uh, They want to break Russia up into smaller nations, balkanize it like they did to Yugoslavia during the Clinton administration in order to grab their vast resource base. So I see that Canada is doing so much, sending uh, not only money to Ukraine, but also helping to coordinate uh, military transfers of equipment from other NATO countries. And then I know Canada has been uh, training a lot of uh, the Nazis that were brought into the quote-unquote National Guard so they could dress them up and pretend that there was no longer any Nazis in the Ukrainian military. So Canada has played a key role in that. And then, of course, Canada has been sending mercenaries there as well. So for all those reasons, I felt that it was important to join that statement. I went there in 2019, invited by a labor union leader in Lugansk, in the Donbass, in eastern Ukraine, near the Russian border. And I toured there and also Donetsk, seeing the effects of the shelling, largely the shelling of the Donbass region by the Nazis since 2014, after they were sent from the western part of the country where they predominate to the east to attack the people in the Donbass. And I learned that more than 14,000 have been killed and more than 34,000 wounded during that time. I was taken to some of the grave sites. I saw apartment blocks, civilian apartment blocks that were damaged as a result of the shelling by the Nazis. And so uh, I really came away with a deep, deep feeling, a deep sense of solidarity, like similar to what people get when they go and meet with the Palestinian people who were constantly being killed by the Israeli government. And so it was that that uh, 
really, uh, I think, made more concrete for me my feelings. But I've been watching this whole situation since the coup in 2014. I watched basically in real time on video the May 2nd, 2014 slaughter of people inside the trades union house in Odessa, uh, Ukraine, where people that were just peacefully collecting signatures, calling for a federated Ukraine, let us speak the Russian language, let us elect our local officials, still be part of Ukraine. They were attacked by the Nazis and anywhere between 50 to 100 or more were killed and uh, many have disappeared and never returned. There's all kinds of uh, evidence of who was doing these crimes. No one has ever been arrested. In fact, that perpetrated these crimes, only the people that were uh, victims of these crimes were arrested and disappeared. So ever since that time, this has been in my heart, and I virtually every day uh, since then have been on the case. We're just reading in the last week or so that Canada's uh, politician, uh, Christia Freeland, is being considered to become the next NATO uh, Secretary General. She's the, one of the leading candidates. So it's clear that for the United States and NATO, Canada is a prize because it's always had a reputation of being a neutral country, a fair country. I remember when I went to Cuba uh, on delegations back in the 1980s that uh, the uh, people there talked about Canada as a friendly country, you know, to the Cuban people. But all of that's changed now as the neoliberals, the neocons have taken control of our government in Washington, but also the Canadian government as well. So uh, I think it's really important for the Canadian people to wise up, wake up, figure out what's going on and speak out against their own country that is helping to push what very possibly could turn to in a red-hot flash to a nuclear war. For I marched to the battles of the German trench in a war that was bound to end all wars. Oh, I must have killed a million men and now they want me back again, but I ain't marching anymore. Lisa Makarchuk has been active in progressive movements since the 1950s, beginning with the campaigns to stop the Rosenbergs' execution and to oppose nuclear weapons. She's been active freeing political prisoners from fascist Portugal, but is currently more focused on solidarity events in Cuba. Here's what she wrote about signing the petition. I find it a supreme irony that our Canadian forces joining others were in Europe to stop the scourge of fascism-Nazism in World War II, many losing their lives, members of the Halishina Regiment, and followers of Stepan Bandera, an extreme nationalist, who fought with the German SS and others, committing horrendous crimes against their own people, were eventually supported and their ideological inheritors continue to be supported by our government. It appears that the government thought of them as potential allies in the fight against the progressive forces that were taking hold in society starting in the 30s. When the war was over, many of them feared going back to their homes in Ukraine. Great Britain refused to take them, probably for them having a murderous reputation from their conduct in the war. So, they were surreptitiously spirited to Canada, without much regard for documents or immigration rules. It was not long before their small numbers appeared to be wielding an inordinate 
amount of influence and the progressive wing of the Ukrainian community got gradually overwhelmed and has now pretty much disappeared as a unified voice blurring the ideological lines between the two sides. What was an enemy in World War II, which our troops died saving us from, are an ally today, influencing policies. Statues have been erected in their honor, such as the one in Edmonton of Roman Shukovich, a military commander on the Nazi side responsible for the death of some 100,000 Poles. Having been educated in a Western Eurocentric educational system, I only became aware of the deep divisions among the people of Ukraine when I was already well into adulthood. My parents, who originally settled near Stenin, Saskatchewan, in 1928, were welcomed by the Ukrainian community already established there, but with time they were found by this community to be Moscali. Presumably this was something akin to Moscow lovers. My parents never explained to me what Moscali meant, because I don't think they understood it themselves. After two years of denigration, isolation, and material damages inflicted, I fled that community and were welcomed east of Iran, Saskatchewan, by a Dukabor community made up of Russian religious pacifists. Divisions that have run deeply within Ukraine and Canada, the extreme nationalist ideology embraces anti-Semitism, racism, homophobia, and a white supremacist attitude. These values are not Canadian values, our government blinded by its anti-socialist and communist biases and now its Russophobia has found a steady ally in this ultra-nationalist niche, using them and our tax dollars to undermine and stifle and confuse progressive movements. Ships. Minutes after they took I from the bottomless pit, but my hand was made strong by the end of the Almighty. We forward in this generation triumphantly. Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom 
Cause all I ever had Redemption songs Redemption songs Redemption songs This is On the Ground, the Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. So before the break, we heard voices from a recent episode of the Global Research News Hour titled Canadian Support for Nazi Collaborators After World War II, Lest We Forget. And now to continue this month's episode of the F Word on Fascism, I'm happy to be joined by host and producer of that podcast, Michael Welch. And at the end of that last segment, you actually heard Michael reading a statement from an activist living in Cuba. But in any case, uh, welcome to the show, Michael. Well, it's a pleasure to be on On the Ground with you, Esther. Thank you for having me. Yes, well, the pleasure is all ours. Uh, we're really happy that you could join us. Well, why don't we start with a little bit of the history? People just tuning in will wonder why we are discussing Ukraine and Canada, of all places. And so tell us about how the history of Ukraine and Canada is connected and how it's connected to this current proxy war against Russia. Sure. Basically, it comes down to after the Second World War, there was a lot of the crowd of uh, people who were, were supporting the, the Nazis, who were collaborators with the Nazis. And they came into the country and were able to uh, pretty much displace the, the, the previous grade of Ukrainians. So you've got, uh, I mean, I think it, you can see that the Ukrainian, the communists in, in 1940 were banned, and even the um, Association of United Ukrainian Canadians was found unlawful at the same time. And this new brand of Ukrainians, which is you know basically right-wing and collaborated with the Nazis, they came together and they displaced that brand of Ukrainians. And, and today they're the most vocal group through the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. They are the most vocal group in the Ukrainian diaspora, even though they are not representative of all members of the diaspora. So that's how we've got this thing set up by a government that was very, in the 1940s, uh, was actually very anti-Semitic and was very gung-ho about supporting this Cold War effort against the, the communist mm -hmm. powers or the, uh, what, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what Hitler referred to as the, uh, the Jewish Bolsheviks or, or something like that. But uh, yeah, that's basically the the framework that, that we were approaching this. I think your framework really fits in very well with some of the information that we've had on our show recently. We ran a few segments of the Oliver Stone produced film Ukraine on Fire. And so a lot of listeners to the show will be familiar with the fact that the U.S., mainly through the CIA, basically gave cover to a lot of Ukrainian Nazis, uh, Ukrainians who collaborated with Nazis during World War II, and how unlike the German Nazis who were put on trial in Nuremberg, many of these Ukrainians were not. None, none of them faced trial. And as you said, many of them fled the country. They were able to seek refuge in places like Canada, probably here in the United States, but as well so many 
even German Nazis went to South America, to Argentina and places where they were, some of them were later discovered and found and put on trial in later decades. So that's one thing you should know. So we are kind of familiar with that history right after World War II. And so the new information your podcast gave to me was the role that Canada played in this and how when these far right Ukrainians came over to Canada, they have since then even put up monuments in Canada to some of these Nazi collaborators. So tell us about that. And there's a petition that the the earlier speakers were referring to that they've signed to have this funding to these monuments and, and groups espousing this Nazi ideology ceased. Yeah, it's true. There's uh, a lot of these uh, these groups as they've you know gained strength from the government, and they're getting all this money to, to basically make them active. And yeah, that's part of the whole mechanism by which they displaced uh, the the previous uh, groups of Ukrainians. Yeah, there were definitely uh, monuments to, for example, in Edmonton, there was one of Roman Shoykovich, and he did uh, a lot of horrible things to. Uh, to Jews in his time, uh, but both uh, him and uh, Stepan Bandera, who was the the head of the whole organization of Ukrainian nationalists, B, you know the the one sector that had been collaborating with Hitler, you know he's also revered within this Ukrainian Canadian group. The first monument that you mentioned is that actually still up in Edmonton. It is, although there was a point where somebody actually, uh, like, a used graffiti or something to, to smear it and saying that it's uh, not appropriate. And, like, within the Canadian media, it's not widely talked about. But there are groups, and, and it includes a, a lot of, I mean, not only the, the, the Esprit de Corps magazine, which is an, a military journalist uh, magazine. Uh, you've got the, the various in, independent Jewish voices. You've got different peace groups all across Canada. Even the Simon Wiesenhall Center recognizes it, but the vast majority of Canadians are unaware of it. Okay, it's it's not made up, talked about in the media, but of course it is very amply documented. Right. So let's talk a little bit more about the petition. And I think that there's a coalition, people signing onto a petition banning federal government funding for of association of Eastern European ethno-nationalists. Um, right. well, anyway, I just wanted to, to get the name of that coalition so that people maybe could could find them online and oh, yes. could, if they want to sign the petition, even though they're not in Canada, <laughs> if they want to just show solidarity. How, sure. how, what, what is the organization and how could people contact them? Okay, it's, it's the po- Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade. It's about, a, about three decades Maybe four decades old now. It's uh, you know Richard Sanders is the main uh, coalition. Uh, you know the editor. He also puts together a, a magazine called Press for Conversion, and the website. And in fact, you'll see the petition right at the top of the page. You go to coat. dot ncf. dot ca. So that's coat. dot ncf. dot ca. And uh, you'll you'll find the petition there, and it goes into detail about you know what it's all about. Basically, you stop funding these groups that glorify the Nazi collaborators. 
Right. Okay. Well, we're just running out of time. And um, can you end by just letting us know about where your podcast emanates from? Um, I know it's uh, you give as we often try to do here, we we recognize the, the land that we're on and the people's, the indigenous uh, land that we're inhabiting. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, first of all, I, yeah, I'll say that we do recognize uh, where we come from, uh, where we're our, the location on which our shows are produced. My show is produced on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, the Ininu, the Oji Cree, the Diné and the Dakota, it's the birthplace of the Métis Nation. It's the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. And of course, it's, that's, that's important because we always have to recognize, you know, like, you know, it, it, it's stolen land, basically. I mean, we should at least acknowledge, as a minimum, we should acknowledge where it comes from and, and how we're, uh, we've been supported. Uh, that's an ongoing injustice that we are trying to correct Absolutely. Well, I certainly appreciate the show and all the information that people. I want to thank Michael Welch for joining me. He's producer and host of the Global Research News Hour podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today, Michael. It's been a pleasure, Esther. Take care. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Averam. E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I, be like Victor, E-R-E-M. Special thanks to all of our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. One last reminder about that important program, The Real Path to Peace in Ukraine, that's Saturday, November 19th, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the People's Forum in New York. But I think at this point, they can only take online attendance. And you can watch that uh, conference program on YouTube on the People's Forum channel. The People's Forum channel on YouTube will have a live stream of that program, The Real Path to Peace in Ukraine. The music we played this hour included Babylon System by Bob Marley, Redemption Song by Bob Marley, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care. And keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank you.
call you, sweet time. I'll get it right back to you. What is this? Thing? 